0: From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. One of my favorite things about teaching at UW is uh, every morning walking up Bascom Hill to North Hall. There was also something about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected. People were pleasant and thoughtful and really intellectually engaged. In those instances, I'm always reading for the Badgers. This, This. 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 This is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we are happy to have Professor John Peavy House, who, according to those in the know, is one of the most popular PS instructors on campus. Students really like him, and they really like his classes. Professor Peavy House is also known nationally and internationally for two decades of widely published research. He's won multiple awards for teaching and research throughout his career and has published several books. His research has also been published in more prestigious journals than we could possibly name on a walk-up Bascom, even if we walked really, really slowly. So we'll get into Professor PV House's career in teaching and research. And, uh, well, yeah, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So, John, before we start, I wanted to let our listeners know that we are actually starting a new segment on 1050 Bascom. For those of you unfamiliar with our campus, Bascom Hill is an icon in Madison and UW. As our namesake, we intend to walk up Bascom Hill with our guest uh, to kind of ask rapid fire questions. Um, And so actually you can submit your own questions for our guest on our Facebook page or at our email address, um, which are both linked on our webpage. So, John, just so you know, you're going to be our first guest to undertake this physical feat later today. Are you prepared for that? I think so. We'll see. We'll see how much I run out of breath. We will have to get to the top. You never get
1: used to walking up Bascom Hill.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's dive in. You know, where are you from? Paint us Mm -hmm. a picture of of Little John, maybe a middle school, high school. We'll start there.
1: Okay. So I'm from, uh, I'm from Coffeyville, Kansas, which a really small town in the southeast part of Kansas. High school, I was always kind of been a little bit of an international dork in that sense. Like as a kid, I would write to, um, I remember writing to embassies like in the U.S. for like, okay. tell me something about your country. And then they'd send all this like paraphernalia and like literature and stuff, which I didn't understand. So, but the thing in high school that sort of defined my high school experience in particular, and that actually has something to do with my career choice was um, debate. Mm. Uh, I was a, I was a debate nerd in high school. And two of the four years I did policy debate in high school, the topic was international relations oriented. Mm. One year it was okay. like, the, the year I remember was one year your particular was Latin American politics. And so that kind of got me interested in reading broadly, doing uh, uh, forensics as well. And so that, you know, as a high school kid, like reading about foreign policy and Latin America and all these things, it's kind of like, sure. yeah, this is interesting stuff.
0: So how did your parents react to you writing letters to the embassy and receiving this material back?
1: Yeah. I mean, they had no idea where this was coming from. Like, I mean, they, my mother was a teacher, so she, like, anything to, like, read or whatever, she was always encouraging of that. But, but Yeah. But, yeah, the international stuff was totally uh, different for
0: them. Yep. Okay. So I understand you, so you've been with the department for a while. In mm-hmm. fact, you came here shortly after 9-11 had occurred. Exactly. For some of our listeners who aren't old enough to remember that, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that event changed the way we talk about IR today and how you may undertake teaching it.
1: Mm-hmm. That was my first fall teaching. Um that was kind of crazy, you know? It's like imagine. you throw the syllabus out the window like the third week of class. And we, I did. Like, I was teaching a class on American foreign policy you know, it's like there was class the day after. I didn't have class that day, that morning, but I had class the day after. And I'll never forget this. Like walking in, Mm -hmm. like everyone was in class. Like everyone was just like, what's happening? And the whole class, we just sat and talked and was like 85 students in the room and we just all sat and talked and asked questions. And I Mm -hmm. tried the best I could to answer questions. And then from then on out, we just kind of I mean, we kept to some of the syllabus and some of the topics because I felt they were relevant to what Mm -hmm. we were talking about, but we also just reconfigured. I mean, that we kind of, I kind of winged it a little bit that semester, and I hope you know, I think the students appreciated it. I mean, I learned a lot. We all learned a lot. Not to go too deep in, but you know, terrorism had not been a huge subject of study for the field of political science to that sure, point. Sure. There were a small handful of people who were considered experts. Um, and in fact, earlier in the fall, as sort of a keynote kickoff, we had had a very famous international relations professor, Bob Jervis, uh, come and give a talk. And uh, Jervis had sort of, someone had asked him from the, it was a uh, public lecture, someone had asked him, well, what about terrorism? And he kind of laughed. And he's like, well, why would you ever study terrorism, yeah. right? Like, it's not that important of a thing. Sure. And he is someone who had studied a little bit on, on terrorism, like psychology of terrorism. And, and then, you know, 9-11 happens and it's like, okay, everyone re-gears. Like, okay, this is what we need to study now. It also really, the other thing I'll mention that it changed was until that point, like, so, right, so I grew up in the Cold War. So everything growing up was like Cold War, Cold War, Russia, Russia, mm-hmm. maybe some China. And then 89, 1989 happens, the Cold War ends, and it's like, oh, peace, prosperity, <laughs> like, you know, and, and all international problems seemed kind of small sure. at that point. And in fact, we dove into things like development. How, like the only thing we need to care about now is like economic development, or the only thing we need to care about is the environment, right? And then, so from 1989 to 2000, that's kind of what mm. the field debated. It's like, well, where do we go now? Like, what do we do next? And we never really settled on anything. And if we had settled on anything, it's, well, we'll get to move away from security. Finally. And did you
0: feel that while you were doing your PhD at Ohio State that Absolutely. you might be fumbling for something?
1: Well, what I knew is I'm not going to do anything related to international security. Okay. right? Because it's like, OK, the era, the golden era of studying security is over. Mm-hmm. Like, we can stop studying war and conflict now because we'll leave that to the comparativists to study civil war because sure. that's what was going on. So it's like is, you know, kind of moving away from security at that point. And then 9-11 happens and it's like, oh. Okay. Right so much and, for that. We're yeah, back, we're back to security. Yeah.
0: Let's jump into your research a little bit. What percentage do you cover IR versus domestic politics? And do they have an influence on each other? Absolutely. And that's
1: kind of, so the way I view a lot of my, so IR is my core area. I think every almost everything I do, with the exception of some recent stuff, is related to international relations. The part of IR I'm interested in is what happens within states to influence foreign policy and what IR then looks like. Mm. And so to answer that, you need to know a little bit about comparative politics, a little bit about American politics. And so that's kind of where my niche is, I think, in the field is sort of I'm the domestic politics guy Mm -hmm. um, that that studies international relations. Interesting, okay.
0: So you've published several books, including, but not limited to, While Dangers Gather, Congressional Checks on Presidential War Powers, Time Series Analysis for the Social Scientist, Democracy from Above, Regional Organizations, and Democratization. You also have an IR textbook that is in, what, the 11th, 12th? Now 12th. Edition, yeah. okay. Yeah. And it's it's used pretty widely at colleges and universities all over the place. Uh, so we'll start there. In your intro to your textbook, who mm-hmm. you co-authored with Joshua Goldstein, mm-hmm. you note the increasing connectedness in the world that IR brings or that we see in the world. There's a lot of good things that Mm -hmm. happens because of this interconnectedness throughout countries and around the world. What are some of those, and what are some drawbacks that you see with this? Look, I mean,
1: what we call interdependence, right? The trade relationships, economic interactions between individuals, between firms, internationally, has both brought amazing opportunity, economic growth, Consumer choice, Mm -hmm. uh, all great things. They've also brought the backlash to globalization, right? Job loss, offshoring. So, the thing about IR is I tell people almost every up has a down, right? And so, you know, globalization, this interconnectedness has brought, again, it's brought growth, economic growth. Um, It's brought all these positive things. But it's brought the drawbacks, and you're seeing that now. I mean, mm-hmm. we're sitting in a moment right now where people are focused on the drawbacks. Sure. And, you know, I, I don't know how far I'd push this argument, but one of my current kind of talking points on this is that I think, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, we were so focused on the new things this we're bringing, like the information revolution and mm-hmm. the Internet and cell phones yeah. and consumer choice and free trade and 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 I think and now we're obviously focused on the downsides of those things right and nationalism is growing and populism is growing and people are starting to question about the distribution of the gains mm-hmm. so right all this globalization brought like huge wealth gains frankly all over the world but of course they're not those gains aren't distributed evenly and I think what a lot of people have done, especially that are anti-globalization now, is they've sort of internalized all the good things that came out of this. It's like, Mm -hmm. we take email for granted. We take consumer choice for granted. We take trade you know, the fact that you can go into a grocery store these days and buy grapes. Like this is, a, sure. this is a dumb example, but like growing up, I remember as a kid in Kansas, like you could only buy grapes like three months out of the year. Right. And I was like, grapes are like a thing. Like, oh my gosh, we get to buy grapes now. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's dumb. Now you go in the store. It's like, anytime you can buy grapes yeah. because of course yeah. we're importing them mm-hmm. from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, that was not a thing when I was a kid growing up. And so, but now no one remembers that anymore. And everyone's like, oh yeah, we've always had these types of things. And so now what we focus on instead are sort of the negative aspects. And it's like, The environmental aspects of globalization, which can be oftentimes Mm -hmm. bad, um, or the job loss aspects, and like those are real, and like those are real costs to this interconnectedness. And I think what politicians are struggling with now, what we're studying, political scientists are struggling with now, is like, how do we get out of this moment? Like, how do we try to bring balance? Like, a lot of these grievances you know look let's let's use proper names like a lot of the grievances of like you know a Trump voter about mm-hmm. job loss or like where I'm from in Coffeyville Kansas like unemployment's high and wages have stagnated for the last two decades and when i was growing up my town was 18,000 people it's 9,000 people now mm-hmm. like these are real issues that people are having and it's like how like i think globalization is partially to blame sure. for that but only a certain amount i think technology i think there's tons of factors that go into that so what my current I know you'll probably ask later like you know what am I currently thinking about and this is one of the big things it's like some people have chosen to to follow the route of okay let's shut it down like let's yeah. do nationalism america first I think what I'm more interested in is trying to figure out okay how can we change the distribution of the gains from this interconnectedness and think about how this could work better for people sitting in Madison or Coffeyville Kansas or you mm-hmm. know rural Oklahoma wherever yeah
0: all right. So let's move on to actually the first book that okay. you ever wrote, uh, Democracy from Above, Regional Organizations and Democratization. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about or why you decided to undertake that? So this was my dissertation. Sure. So okay. uh,
1: this was my dissertation is uh, to, in grad school. And the thing that inspired that book was um, at the time that you know the Cold War had ended, I started grad school in 1995 and then I finished in 2000. And around that time, Starting in the mid-'90s to late-'90s, there was all this talk of NATO expansion and expanding free trade agreements and expanding all these international organizations. And one of the justifications that was often used, especially by politicians, was, oh, this is going to help all these countries that used to be communist stay not communist, mm-hmm. right? And it's going to help them transition to market economies and democracies and all this stuff. And And everyone kind of bought that. Mm Everyone's like, "Yeah, of course, great. NATO can do this." And I looked back at IR, and like, no one had ever said, like, no one had ever written about that. And been like, in fact, all the writing on international organizations and regional organizations is about how they helped at the international level, right? How you get cooperation internationally, not anything that could change domestically because Mm -hmm. of these. And some of the key writers at the time, Bob Cohane, Joe Nye, these guys, they specifically said, like, "Oh, these probably don't have much to do with domestic politics." I'm like, "Well, then." How are all these pundits saying this is going to be a thing when Mm -hmm. all of our evidence and theory suggest it's not going to be a thing? And so I sat down to try to figure out, is there a theory, is there a set of concepts that might link international organizations to domestic politics? What would that look like? Do we find associations between... Membership in these organizations and Mm -hmm. becoming democracies or staying democracies. So that was kind of the core.
0: Sure. Yeah So can you maybe walk us through some of the nitty-gritty of how you gather this data? What your research entailed? Yeah, kind of your writing process behind the book. Yeah, so
1: Yeah, so oh boy. Yeah, lots of pain and suffering Uh, (laughs) um, So I started with the theory stuff So I just started reading about what have theorists said about international organizations and what they do and again like I say didn't find much on domestic politics. I then went out and read all the comparative politics literature on democratization. It was like, OK, is there anyone out here saying, oh, the key to being a democracy is being a member of some mm-hmm. international mm-hmm. organization? Of course, no. A, a couple people had hinted towards that. Because one thing that had happened in the late 70s, early 80s was Spain, Greece, and Portugal had democratized and had sure. then gotten in the EU. So there's been a few people kind of looked at that and said, well, maybe there was some relationship there. And so I started then reading historically about mm-hmm. Spain, okay. Portugal, Greece. Uh, getting in the EU and their transition process, um, and then sort of building a theory, you know, I won't say completely inductively, but sort of going back and forth between theory and data, um, historical cases that I started reading about Latin America and those democratic transition, which had happened in the 80s, and then started to put the two parts together, like the concept theory part and then the case part. So about half of the evidence in the book are case case studies. Mm-hmm. And I did not unfortunately have the time or the resources to go do like a bunch of interviews or like archival stuff. So it was all secondary. So like I had, you know, huge stacks of books all over my room that were like about Greece and a huge yeah. stack about, you know, Paraguay, a huge stack about Turkey, you know, so sort of reading the secondary literature on that. And so I did those kind of case studies sure. and tried to piece together what happened and I play a role or not. And then the other part was uh, statistics, you know, statistical large, what we call large and quantitative. So there were existing data sets on things like democratization, on other things you'd want to measure, like did the country have a past history with democracy, okay. those types of things, income levels. There was no updated, widely available data on state memberships in international organizations. And so there was an older data set that had stopped in 1965. <laughs> and so I spent part of my dissertation years finishing that updating that data set like what states were in what organizations when turns out that was kind of a hard thing to to piece together and then i could run some correlations and say like okay are there correlations between membership and organizations and whether you democratize or not
0: so let's move on to uh one more book and then we'll talk about some articles maybe cool um so a couple of years after your first book you wrote while dangers gather congressional checks on presidential war powers um with william howell Can you talk about maybe some of the questions that are brought up in that book? Yes.
1: So that book, you know, also sort of inspired a little bit by the headlines. So William, who's now um, the chair at the University of Chicago Department of Political Science, he and I started here both as assistant professors in Mm. 2000, like first job together. And what do assistant professors do all the time together? We go to lunch together and like drink beer together (laughs) after work. And so we were sitting around after 9-11. Okay. You know, the Bush administration's in power, 2002, threatening the Iraq War and he's a politics he's a, an american politics scholar and i was like you know it's funny no one's talking about congress <laughs> stopping this war even though at the time it was like controversial like the public sure. wasn't sold a big chunk of congress wasn't sold and it's like everyone's just assuming this is going to happen or that bush can do this but where's the role of congress and he's like well american scholars don't talk about this so he's mm. like i assume this was an ir and i'm like no it's not an ir and so we like you know, like sketched literally. Please tell me it was on a napkin. Uh, It was. The the beginning of this was on a napkin on the terrace (laughs) uh, over beer talking about, well, what would an argument like this look like? And so that's how it started. Um, He then left. Uh, He moved to Harvard the next year. So that slowed us down a bit. But we kept working and, you know, the war happened and we began to question like, okay, why didn't Congress do more? Mm-hmm. And our answer, the short version of the answer is, well, it's about partisanship. It's it's kind of a sad, cynical answer, but it's like, okay, if there's a Republican president and Republicans control Congress, they're going to give them free reign. Same thing with Democrats. Like, And the few people who had written on this, a lot of them assumed it was about partisanship in the hawk-dove sense, like, oh, well, Republicans always want to go to war, Democrats never want to. Mm-hmm. That's not at all what we found. We actually found that it really was about Democrats who have Democrats in Congress are much more likely, you know, they've got this whole set of policies they could pick when there's a crisis. It's like, what policy do they pick? Mm-hmm. They tend to much much more frequently pick use of force if they know there aren't a bunch of people in the other party right. that are going to press them in right. Congress. Right. And that was true of Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> so that's kind of the short version is it's partisanship, but not in the hawk-dove sense and just
0: the checks and balances
1: sense. Yeah, yeah, you know?
0: yeah. Your work is deeply rooted in empirical data mm-hmm. and you've published research and a book on research methods, in particular, on time series analysis. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you as a citizen who studies science of politics Mm -hmm. in this so-called post-truth, post-science era? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, especially in light of the fact that your work and research is based on developing rigorous methods for producing knowledge that is not only reliable, but valid. Right, right, It's, it's hard. I find it incredibly frustrating.
1: I mean, look, There are legitimate uncertainties in measurement and analysis. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, during the 2016 election, I remember, you know, the New York Times basically did a poll. They gave their polling data to, you know, five different political scientists and said tell us what this polling data says, and they got five different answers, Mm -hmm. right? And so the other thing to emphasize, this is sort of true in the sciences a little bit too, right? Like there is uncertainty in science. This is what I find frustrating. It's sort of like people translate the uncertainty to knowledge in that, well, we should just throw it out or that we can't know anything. It's like, that's not true. Everything is uncertain in the world, Mm -hmm. right? There's always uncertainty. Sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. Sure. But the whole point of statistics, the whole point of science is to measure central, to some extent, is to measure central tendencies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're always going to find exceptions to central tendencies. And so do you sit there and focus on the exceptions and say, aha, see? Or do you focus on where most people are? I find that where most people are is the interesting part. There are important scholars in my field who love to think about the exceptions. Fine. And so the so-called post-truth thing is, dis- is disturbing because it's like people take the uncertainty of all knowledge, all knowledge has some uncertainty around it. And then sort of blow that up. And they like, oh, we'll see, we can't know yeah. anything. And this is kind of mean, but, you know, it's sort of like when people push on this, they're like, oh, well, we don't know, you know. These models are uncertain or whatever. And it's just like, but that's not how you live your life, right, like when you get a cold, you don't go eat grass. Because you're Mm -hmm. uncertain about, you know, the effect that acetaminophen is going to have on you, right? Because you know what, acetaminophen has different effects for everyone, yes, right, within some margin. This is why you get drugs approved that then kill people, right? There's uncertainty, Mm -hmm. right, and so, like, you don't take that uncertainty and blow that up and oh, we just don't know anything. Like, we know a lot of things. So yeah.
0: what is your process for kind of wading through this uncertainty when you're analyzing the data that you mm-hmm. are using for your research?
1: Well, first of all, yeah, great question. I mean, first of all, I have findings, I publish them, I put out and I say, This is this is what I found. I am in no under no delusion that like I'm finding the last answer on this. And in fact, I tell my grad students, I hope you come along and show them like (laughs) I did something wrong. Like that's the way knowledge accumulates, right? Like that's this dialectical process of Mm -hmm. like, you know, someone's always doing it a little bit better. That's where it should
0: be. You're 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 pushing the ball forward. That's
1: scientific progress. You know, Mm -hmm. we now know the earth goes around the sun, not the other way. And so we can throw that stuff away, right? Um, The old stuff away and move forward uh, with new models. So there's that, like, I don't, I understand, I accept there's uncertainty and that I could be wrong. I don't, I'm not offended by this. The other thing is, one thing I do like to get a little bit nitty gritty, detail y in mm-hmm. like my own work is a concept I work a fair bit with, with, like democracy, right? And how different states are democracies. There are, there's been so much ink spilled over how do we measure that? Like, mm. and I even, you know, I did this in 140 the other day, like, the, you know, here's one way these scholars have measured democracy. Here's another way. Some of the countries are this, they rate the same, but some are completely different. Like, what's up with that? So like in my own work, I try to take as many measures as I can. We call it robustness checks, right? And you say like, okay, personally, I think data set one is the best way to measure democracy, but there are these other 10 data sets. Let me put them in my model and see if it influences the results I get. If it does, that tells me, okay, there's something really important about the way these different data sets have applied the measurement. If it's the same, I think, you know, yeah, there's uncertainty, but mm-hmm. they're all kind of pointing
0: in the same direction, and okay. that's cool. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So I think this is a really good tie-in to kind of our last section here in terms of teaching. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these concepts and, and data right. and analysis and all the stuff you do. How do you mm-hmm. convey that to students? Mm-hmm. You teach several courses. And many students admire you as a, as a professor. How do you keep things fresh and interesting in the classroom for yourself and for the students?
1: Well, first and foremost, I love what I do. Like, I love international relations. Like, mm-hmm. and it's always changing. There's always something new. I feel like a lot of the concepts we have really do matter for how you can understand the world. We're not the only part of political science that's like that by any stretch. But it's like, yeah. I think... IR has something to say about the world. So that's always exciting to me. And I love, I'm excited seeing like the light bulbs go off in students and sort of say, oh, yeah, like I understand that better now. And as I say, I try to say in that first day of class every semester, like, I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent consumers. Yeah,
0: critical thinkers.
1: Because most people aren't going to leave here and want to go get a PhD in political mm-hmm. science, right? Mm-hmm. I hope um, <laughs> that would be not a good outcome. But I want people to be able to read the headlines in the papers or see what's coming across, yeah. you know, the feed and, and understand it and kind of the background and why it's happening. And so that's my goal in terms of in terms of teaching. And so with that motivation, I feel like that keeps me interested in teaching and in the material. Um and because the headlines are always changing there's mm-hmm. always new opportunities definitely. to say oh yeah look at what happened today and and here's how this model applies or this concept applies
0: all right final question okay definitely most important question okay people that know you know that you have an affinity for dr pepper yes <laughs> can you explain and if Mr. Pepper did not have his doctorate, would you also yeah. be a fan?
1: <laughs> Only because yeah, that's right. I didn't start drinking until I got mine. No, that's not true. Um, <laughs> so okay, so here's the true story behind my Diet Doctor Pepper obsession. Um, uh, I'm a type one diabetic, so okay. I've been a I've been a diabetic since I was five years old, and I was diagnosed. I got very ill, and I went to the hospital. And they figured out, oh, he's got diabetes. Um, going to have to start taking shots. And, you know, the doctor's like all this stuff at once, like you, you're going to have to take shots every day and you can't eat sweet things anymore, blah, blah, blah. And literally, you know, like this is, you know, the 1970s medical care, right? And he's like, but you can drink diet soda. And he literally pulls out of his lab coat, a diet, Dr. Pepper, a can of diet, Dr. Pepper, he's like, but you can drink this. I'm like okay, and like my parents to that point had not let me drink much soda, you know, sugar otherwise, and so like I'm like okay, like silver lining, right? And so like I pop it open, it's like oh, this tastes very good actually, and so like oh my god, so that's kind of how (laughs) so I've always looked fondly upon Diet Dr Pepper, and it's also why I drink Diet, and I can't have the calories, and so um, so yeah, so that's the so that's the story. Um, that is I did not know that that's a that's yeah. pretty cool so so yeah so that's the diet dr. pepper story.
0: through the grapevine I've heard that you were in a band this is, is true. this true it's true oh my Cannot god deny it yes all right so tell us about it all
1: right so uh, it's professor koplovich uh, professor kid and myself um, uh, Andy plays guitar uh, Mark's a drummer I play keyboards And sing a little bit um, We've been going like Three or four years Okay uh, Check We're on Bandcamp Check us out We have a We have a seven inch uh, Yeah do a little record. plug
0: here For the band
1: Well right Got a seven inch You know go on Bandcamp We're not on iTunes Or Spotify yet But you know Maybe All right <laughs> We give up our day
0: jobs <laughs> We might go that direction That's awesome uh, a <laughs> So it is now time to head out to Bascom Hill um, and hit the rapid and get fire winded. questions. <laughs> yeah. And then we will just kind of wrap everything up and, uh, and say thanks. All right, John, we are now standing at the base of Bascom Hill. It is nice and freezing cold out here, perfect for a walk up Bascom. That's right, yep. All right, what do you say we uh, we start the speed round? All the right, let's idea do it. is you have about five seconds to answer each question. Okay. Um, if you answer with one word, uh, that's ideal. Okay. However, a couple of them are uh, more than one word answers, or okay. could be. Okay. All right, so uh, let's take a walk up Bascom. Okay. All right, first job. Janitor. Favorite planet other than Earth and why? Saturn, the rings. What would you do if you could go there? Oh, man, I don't know.
1: Uh, 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 Jump very high.
0: Okay. Favorite bingeable TV show? Uh, The Good Place. Favorite vacation destination? Uh, Zihuatanejo, Mexico. How long would you survive a zombie apocalypse, and what's your weapon of choice? Um uh, uh machete, not very long. <laughs> Describe yourself as a teenager in three words. Nerdy, lanky, awkward. Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Milk. One thing you wish you could uninvent.
1: Oh man. Uh God, that's a good one. Uh uninvent. 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 Uh the designated hitter.
0: You can't be a poli-sci professor anymore. What's your dream career? Bass player
1: for the Black Crows.
0: Which was the first to become a state, North Dakota or South Dakota? North Dakota. Same time. Favorite Damn. breakfast spot in Madison?
1: Uh, actually, uh, I love the the farmer's market when it's open. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, farmer's market. Or Mickey's Dairy Bar. Uh,
0: good call. What is your campaign slogan for the 2020 presidential election? Uh, elect me to get me out of the classroom. Wallet, phone, keys, which pockets are they in? Uh, Keys, coat, uh, wallet, back right, phone, back left. you have 10 seconds to name as many baseball players as you can?
1: Uh, Ryan Sandberg, Andre Dawson, Ron Say, uh, oh my god, I'm naming the 1984 Cubs.
0: Uh, No, Dawson wasn't on that team. Bill Buckner. uh, Time. Ah, damn. How many U.S. states border the Pacific Ocean? Alaska,
1: Hawaii, California, Oregon, uh, Washington.
0: Favorite condiment? Brown mustard. A documentary film on you just finished? What song is playing as the credits roll? Uh, that I just finished? It's a documentary on you. Oh. Um, Small Town by John Mellencamp. Say silk five times. Silk, 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 silk. Now spell silk. S-I-L-K. What do cows drink? Water. Mac or PC? Oh, Mac. Favorite activity at the terrace?
1: Uh, drinking beer.
0: Bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, two outs, down by one. Who are you putting up to bat to win it?
1: Uh,
0: Rizzo. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oink, oink. Oink, 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 who? Are you a pig or an owl? A pig. Must have smartphone app. Must have
1: smartphone app. Uh, Dark
0: Sky. What would you name your yacht if you have one? Well, actually, maybe you do have one. I don't know.
1: I don't have a yacht. Uh, What would I name my yacht? Um, The SS. uh, The SSIR. The Sir.
0: <laughs> Does absolute power corrupt absolutely? Yes. You have 30 seconds. We are at the top of Bascom Hill. You have 30 seconds to walk me through how to make your favorite food. Go.
1: Uh, take cream, milk, and butter together, uh, add two cups of flour, add oatmeal, uh, add raisins are optional, um, sugar, baker sugar, a little brown sugar, put it in the refrigerator for a couple
0: hours, drop them on a uh, cookie sheet and, and bake them oatmeal raisin. Oatmeal raisin cookies. All right, that's a good way to end this podcast. Uh, thanks, John, for taking a walk up Baskin with me. Thank you. Oh, that's good.